So hello and welcome to listeners of My Workplace Culture podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Jennifer Turner with me to explore the cultures that shaped her and the cultures that she is shaping. Jennifer is currently the State Operations Manager for Symbian in Western Australia. For anyone who hasn't heard of Symbian, the company is a national wholesaler of healthcare services and products supporting thousands of pharmacies and hospitals around Australia. Jennifer's had an interesting and varied career before settling out west. Her professional experience spans several destinations, including London, New Zealand, and Sydney, and several industries from steel to wine to pharmaceuticals. So Jennifer, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you too, John. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to talking to you. I'd like to ask you first about your early life, then maybe we talk a little bit about the work you did in retail in New Zealand, and then in Sydney, you've had various roles in Sydney with Winemaker's Choice, API, and then Symbian. I'm curious about all these experiences that you've had, how they've shaped you, and also perhaps later on how you started to shape them in terms of the culture. I think what happens is early in our careers, we tend to be shaped, and then later we start to do the shaping more as we get more influential and we get better as leaders. Let's talk about your early life first. Who were the key influences on you when you were growing up? Can you think of lessons that you learned as you were growing up that you carried forward into your working life? What sort of things happened? Well, we were immigrants, I suppose. We came from England when I was three years old. Ten-pound palms, I think they used to call them. (laughs) And my mum was instantly grabbed when she arrived off the boat to become a brown owl and um, and was seconded into the Girl Guide movement. And as a three-year-old, I sort of obviously had to go everywhere with my mum because there wasn't a babysitter and uh, we knew nobody and dad was trying to get a job, I guess. Nothing was handed on a plate in those days. It was after the war, I guess. And my mum is one of those people that sort of had to do it tough. Dad went off to the Tasman Pulp and Paper Mill and was left with three of us. And my brother's, the oldest one was seven, and um, then my middle brother and then myself, three. Where were you living? Um, in a place called Mount Monganui. And our very first vehicle was an old Bedford truck and um, you'd have to wind the handle and, and get it going. And my mum used to be out there sort of trying to wind the handle and, and then go to the girl guide meetings and get the groceries and all of this on her own. All right. Um, so, you know, we all sort of had to rally round as kids and make sure that we all helped and did the right thing. My mum it was an amazing person and I have to say that she probably moulded the way I think and my actions. She used to run jamborees in the end and ended up getting a girl, well, the Queen's Award, actually, in New Zealand for girl guides. And she was also the camp advisor for New Zealand. So she would organise major jamborees with containers and sort of have 2,000 children descend on paddocks in the middle of nowhere and have to feed them. And I was, of course, dragged around with all of this. And... um, I suppose you pick up a lot when you sort of have to have things thrown at you and you've got to help. And that was just how it was. And so my mum's motto in life was always to put back. We all, she had this real thing about putting back. And I don't know whether she, I don't think she would have got it from her grandma, but maybe after the war, maybe she felt she needed to. I'm not quite sure. So she was very self-sufficient and she made sure I was self-sufficient. You know, I wasn't allowed to be 
girly, I guess. I had to cook and sew and I had to make sure I could make concrete and um, change the tyres on the cars and all that sort of thing. You, you know, there was no room for being, I suppose, uh, what's the word for it? Precious. <laughs> and her whole motto, like I said, was put back. And so I guess that's how I started. And um, obviously very naive being a New Zealander because there was only about 2 million of us in those days in a lot of country. And I grew up in a society where everything was very open, used to go out and enjoy life and not have to worry about too much, I guess. But we always had to help people, you know, down the road or uh, mum would always to take us everywhere to make sure we were always helping people, all three of us. So it sounds like then it was putting back, giving back uh, yeah. and helping others and very much a doing sort of environment you know getting things done very practical action oriented yes yeah and um she would help people like you know i always remember quite there was a lady in our town her husband got killed on a railway crossing and my mother was shocked that she couldn't do the books or manage her life so mum went around there and taught her how to do bookkeeping and to manage the you know the actual books in the house and how to buy food and all that sort of stuff because apparently her husband did it all and you know she got a great deal of satisfaction out of helping people like that and I suppose I I was very proud of my mum doing that so I guess you just take these things on don't you this is just how it starts so between your early life then in Mount Monganui, yeah, you studied in, at Sydney Uni, didn't you? No, how it works was I was in Mount Monganui and then at the age of 21, like all good Kiwis, we got on an aeroplane and disappeared to the other side of the world because <laughs> right. New Zealand wasn't big enough for us. Um, <laughs> and um, I actually then worked as a bookkeeper and because that was the best paying job you could get in London was to become either an assistant accountant, a bookkeeper or something to do with money. And I was very fortunate to meet a couple of gentlemen that I was contracted to to teach me P&L, which in a really early stage. And that stead, probably stood me in good stead today because I know how to navigate a, a profit and loss account. And so, and that was good money. And I did that the whole time I was in London and we sort of tripped off to Turkey and I lived in Turkey for a while and um, different parts, France, whatever, just a normal Kiwi thing to do. When I came home, I um, did the books for a guy. I, I think it was a part-time job, I guess. I was never a career person at that point. I was just sort of lolling about as you do, just going from, you know, doing one job and enjoying life. And I met up with this gentleman and we started doing Captain Snooze and I do all the books. And then one day the, the salesperson was missing off the floor. They were sick for whatever reason. And I went out and started selling border beds. And I had a great time doing that. I loved the sales side of it. And I ended up asking, could I do both? You know, do the books when I had no customers and whatever. Um, and that's basically how it happened. And uh, I got a, an award anyway. I was sent to Fiji for selling the most waterbeds in New oh. Zealand. There <laughs> right. you go. This, out of this little <laughs> shop called Papatoe Toe. <laughs> so when you went back to New Zealand, you settled in Auckland? Yeah. yeah, we settled in Auckland. Um, but my husband, he didn't particularly like New Zealand. He found it was just that too small, and, and it can be, you know. So we were back there, I can't remember how many years, a few years anyway, and then we sold up the business and things were tough in New Zealand then. Um, it was sort of the same time as Banana Republic was happening here in, in Australia. 
to Paul Keating's conversations. Um, and so we came to Australia with sort of nothing really. And I started off again as a bookkeeper for a guy who owned liquor stores, which is how Winemaker's Choice was born, basically. And he had 13 liquor stores and three pubs. And I used to do all the books for that. And then one day I used to follow Cellar Masters and seeing what they were doing with American Express. And I asked if he'd like to to do the same, why don't we go and talk to Diners Club International? And he goes, well, if you can get it with Diners Club International, let's give it a go and I'll go and get you a building. And that's um, how Winemaker's Choice was born, really. So it started very small and I knew nothing about marketing. And so because I knew nothing about marketing, then I decided to go and find out what marketing was all about and then put myself through uni. Yeah. Okay. So that's when you ended up at Sydney Uni doing marketing. All right. Okay. So when was it you got married then? When you were over in in the UK? In the UK. Yeah. And your husband was from where? Turkey? He was from Turkey. And my mother was mortified when I first said, you know, I was going out with this guy. Um, and I was going to head to Turkey with him for a while. And um, she said, oh, my God. She says, it's not the fact that you're getting on a plane and going to Turkey with some person I don't know. But she says, I can't imagine you following anybody around, Jenny. You know, like, it's not me. I'm not a follower. I'm a, probably a leader. She knew me well. But in the end, um, Ohanis came over to New Zealand and obviously they all met and life was good. And yeah, that's how it was. So I'm wondering if that, what influence that had on you at all in your leadership style, that experience. He had a massive influence on me because my parents, and probably if you are English, you would probably know this quite well, but many English, and I don't know whether it was because of the war, but uh, they're very stiff upper lip. There's no hugs and kisses and whatever, and they certainly wouldn't tell you they loved you because that would be showing weakness, you know. Yeah, we don't we don't go there. <laughs> so well, obviously, <laughs> no, you can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Johannes was Mediterranean, and of course, you know, I always remember the first time he met my brothers, and my brothers just cringed because he went up to them and kissed them on both cheeks, and they go, "Oh my God!" You know, all the blood dra- drained from their face. But he was incredibly lovable and he had no um, hesitation in showing people his feelings and how he felt. And and I just admired that. I thought that was that was so brave. And so I tried to emulate that and, um, you know, and cry when you need to cry and all those sorts of things. That was quite a new experience, you know. So, yeah, he brought a lot to our family, actually. He brought an awful lot to our family. It sounded like he gave permission for emotions to be shown and expressed. And that helped you then do that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. He, you know, and that, and I've obviously tried to do that in most of my life now. I don't have, you know, obviously we're not perfect, but. <laughs> you know, I've been working with you for a few years now and. I, my my experience of working with you is that you're certainly aware of the what I, what I would call the emotional landscape of a business, and the you know the the emotions that go on in, in your people. It's not like like some some leaders don't shy away from that, if you like. But my view on emotions are they're incredibly important. There's so much information contained in them. And if you if you have a, an approach that says check your emotions at the door before you come into work, you're denying an incredibly important part of people. So I think we have to embrace the emotional environment, and I, I know that you're very capable of doing that because I've seen you do it. So you know, 
the maybe the results of that growing up process and ma- maturing process has led you to that place, you know, where you're able to embrace the emotional parts of uh, people at work. Yeah, and I've been told many a time to not do that. It's a sign of weakness. And I've always said, well, I'm authentic. I can't be someone I'm not. This is me. I can't change. For And people will see through that if I try to hide my emotions because I say everything on my face. If, if I'm upset, you probably can read the fact that I'm upset and vice versa. Um, some people are very good at hiding their emotions, but I've never been able to do that. Yeah, so do I. I think, and I think it's the opposite. Actually, I think it's a strength to be able to relate to people on an, on an emotional level, and and you know, and I think anyone that does say you can't do that or you need to ignore emotions or you know suppress them, people that say that are people who are not comfortable with their own emotions. Um, I think if you are comfortable with your own emotions, then it's much that's like a prerequisite for. Um, being a better leader so you so what i'm saying there is you need to do some work on yourself and get uh you know connect with your own emotions and get familiar with them and and understand them more and then that's part of becoming a better leader in my view yeah me too you know very difficult to talk to people who don't show emotion to me because i can't read them yeah that's hard that's very difficult for me and um you know, the, the challenge is how do we help people get better in that space rather than judge them? So, I, you know, I think people that aren't in touch with their emotions, that they're doing that for a reason. You know, maybe that was uh, a survival strategy when they were younger was, you know, I, I'm not allowed to be in touch with my emotions. It's too dangerous to do that in my environment when I'm growing up. So, and that carries over into adulthood. And, you know, so there's been some experiences there that have shaped that person. It's then the difficult job for leaders anyway is to, if you're if you're one of those people, is to get more and more familiar with your own emotions and grow into that. You know, that can be done, but it's a that's a challenging process, I think. Especially late in life. But, yeah, it, it's, it's having a preparedness to work on yourself. And I think that's a fantastic role model to be. If you if you're a leader, to role model self development work, it gives everyone else permission to do that, and it makes it you know safer to be someone who commits to developing themselves in the workplace. You and I've worked together on enneagrams, and we've also worked together on frontline leadership and the leading of teams. And I've seen, in amongst all of that, people who have been quite reserved, very reserved, in fact, and you know have probably worked here for years. And not, I've never seen any side of anything really. They've just come in and done the job on home. And through that program, I've seen people sort of blossom and feel suddenly relaxed enough to say how they feel openly to other people and you know that takes a lot of courage for a lot of people but once they do it you can't stop them you know it's fabulous it's you know excitement starts up in the room and yeah well there's this phrase employee engagement you know people engagement at work is thrown around a lot one aspect of that is certainly an emotional engagement a caring, if you like, or a motivation. You know, I'm motivated to do things for the business and I care about the business. And that's like a like a sort of heart-centered approach to work. And then there's the the mental approach, you know, where you're thinking about solving problems and you're 
thoughts are engaged with the with the challenges of work. So when you get people engaged in being you know mentally connected to the job and the problems that it creates and the you know the opportunities it creates and then emotionally engaged with the job and then they're taking action. So if you've got all three of those centers working, the mental, the heart center and the doing center, then you've really built engagement on three levels. That's the challenge for leaders. But I think very often we you see leaders that aren't comfortable with their own emotional environment. So they just lead with the mental approach. And then maybe they have a bias for mental or they have a bias for action. So it's like balancing all three, um, which is part of the Enneagram profile. You know, when you do an Enneagram profile, you get a, a result for those centers. Yeah, that's a way to look at yourself and go. Well, which centers do I need to work on? Which am I overdoing, and which am I underdoing? Mm. And your blind spots. I found that you know the blind spots. If you all work on the blind spots, it's not it's not a negative. It's actually it's sort of it's an awakening. Sometimes you know you go, oh my god, I didn't realize I did that. And would you be willing to share one? The blind spots? Mm. Well, I, I personally have a, a huge blind spot. I always think that everybody's on my bus <laughs> when, in fact, they're not. <laughs> and I get excited about a project or whatever, and I'm off doing whatever I'm doing. And then I look behind me and can't find anyone because I forgot to ask everybody or tell people what I was doing because I've got a big action center, obviously, and I like to get things done. And now I actually have to constantly think and focus. Look, Jenny, have you told everybody, have you brought everybody along on that bus on the ride? And that's the part of the engagement. I suppose we all get caught up in the fact that we've got to get work done immediately. And and my staff, you know, a couple of times we've had some upset staff because, you know, they've gone to do... I suppose, a task, and suddenly they're pulled off it and sent somewhere else. And of course, human beings, the first thing they think is, I wasn't good enough. They never think, oh, they pulled me off to go somewhere else because I'm fabulous and I'm going to be sent somewhere else to do something even more extraordinary. The first thing they always think is, oh, I was just pulled off and sent somewhere else because obviously I wasn't good enough. And all it took was the supervisor or the team leader to have actually stood with them and said, look, I need you over here because the work's over there at the moment, you know, and right now we can probably do without you right here, but you've done a fantastic job while you were here. It's amazing. And in fact, that's why we need to send you over here. But it's that short little conversation that people forget. And um, and so it's a, it's a matter of, I guess, shoring yourself up and saying, I've got to stop and think about this. Every time I talk to people, I really need to understand what I'm talking about and explain yourself well. Because sometimes people only get half a story and they'll only ever take home the negative side for some reason. And that's just a human thing, isn't it? Rather than the positive, because they don't understand the positive because it wasn't explained. What I hear there is like when we're communicating, you know, we can we can actually build engagement into our communication so that you just gave a great example there of how to do that you know it's like a quick explanation of why we need to move you and thank you for the efforts that you've made you're it's like just those little those little statements build engagement into those interactions and then that's the difference between stop that and do this type of yes. or, you know hierarchical ordering people around to i've got another job for you you know th- you're doing a great job here, but this one's a higher priority. Could you please go over and do this this work, which is, you know, we need doing straight away. 
and you're doing a great job here. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's just stopping for that. And, you know, you're authentic when you do that too because, you know, you actually mean it. It's not that you having to say that at all. It's, you know, you just got to stop and keep reframing your thoughts all the time about how you're going to make that person feel good about being here and doing the job, you know, because, you know, quite frankly, I can't do this job on my own. To me, everybody on my team or our team is hugely important. And I'm only one little small part of that. For the listeners uh, understanding what is it you do right now, you've been doing for a number of years now, just so that they understand what you're talking about. What's, what is the role? Uh, State operations manager for WA for a company called Symbian. Yes. And I've worked for Symbian now for 18 years, be 18 years, mm. um, in varying roles. I started off in a role as an assembly manager. And the reason I, I started off in a role like that was because I just met a new partner. My first husband had passed on, passed away. And I was with a new partner and I wanted to get my life in order. And I didn't mm. want to have a job because I'm one of these people that once I start a job, it gets big and that becomes my life. I ended up working in third party, which was a tough gig, a very tough gig, but managed to turn that around. What, what is that exactly? Different type of business. It's not wholesaling. It's actually looking after principles um, and doing the distribution for the principles. Like, you know, could be, I don't know, AstraZeneca or one of those sort of principles, you know, manufacturer of uh, pharmaceutical drugs. So you're working for many different bosses because they're all the principals. So you might have 10 or 13 or maybe 20 principals and you've got to please them all. That sounds tough. Yeah, Yeah. soul destroying. And I think anybody who works in third party could probably commiserate with me. (laughs) So then I came back to wholesale, which was WA, and I saw this job opportunity and I applied for it. And came here, and we love WA. WA is an absolutely fabulous place. So I had no intention of moving. And the people are great. So you moved, you moved to Perth from Sydney. Yeah, so I've been in Sydney for 30-odd years and, and decided to up our roots and move to Perth. So I've been here eight years in this role, this particular role. And the reason this role is probably the most important in my journey is the fact that I have been able to invest 100% in the people. And I have got great engagement on this site. And that's through the whole team working on the engagement of the people and including all the um, investments we've made as well, which is, you know, the Enneagrams and the frontline leadership courses and investing in the people as such, not the business, because that's the end result. Because if you invest in the people up front, you end up investing in the business. That just comes anyway because you've got engaged to people. So what I've noticed is like you've really applied yourself to these different development programs, frontline leaders, and then the team. And, you know, I would say now that people are on the bus and uh, mm. you don't need to look behind you all the time now. The leadership team have definitely bought into this. And um, I think I think it's shown up in the results as well, would you say? From the eight years where I've been here, and I ended up with the same team when I got here as the, my predecessors, but we've managed to increase productivity by 30% right. within eight years. So that's huge. That is huge. And that all comes down, and I think I'm right here because you know, I like to be right occasionally. <laughs> it's just the investment in the people. Mm. 
you know, like if you treat people, you know, and, and their jobs are hard. Their jobs are not easy. You know, they pick and pack. They turn up every day. Some of our guys turn up at 1 a.m. in the morning. That, that's, that's hard. You know, I can't do that. And they work, you know, a good solid eight hours. Sometimes, you know, during recently, during the pandemic, you know, we had huge amounts of lines going out. People were here for 12-hour days, you know, because they, they were invested in the fact that we needed to get the product to the customer, the end result, and they were invested in what they do. And, you know, you can't grab the hearts and minds of people unless they're engaged. So, and it could have been a very different story, I guess, if you got it people who are not engaged in what they do, then you know, they don't turn up for work. It's easy to ring in sick. It's easy to go slow, all those sorts of things. But we had none of that. Everybody just worked alongside each other and got the job done. And that's a testament to them. Yes, it is a testament to them for sure. I wonder if now if you're more conscious of yourself shaping the culture that you work in rather than being shaped by it. Yeah, very much so, I think. In, you know, we have shaped the culture. So I had to start at the very beginning. It took probably about three years here when I first arrived. Like this building was run down. It was terrible. And it was like a lack of love, <laughs> which is so sad. You know, when you drive in and you go, oh, my goodness. Now, I came from Greystains in um, Sydney, which was this brand new, you view, lovely facility and then drove in the driveway here and oh my goodness it was like chalk and cheese I don't think and you know it's I, I get it because it's we're a long way away we are five hours on an airplane and I understand that but how do you expect people to love what they do if you don't show the love you know and where they eat or you know where they go to the toilet I know it sounds terrible but this, this is how bad it was so I was lucky to get a new boss who, who was invested in the same thinking as me, who wanted to invest in the property and get it at least up to speed whereby it was livable or habitable. I don't think I could live in a house that was like this. We had a leaky roof. I mean, it was, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. And it was a huge challenge for me too. I suddenly became a builder and a cement mixer and, you know, <laughs> knew a lot about air conditioning. And uh, so it's been a huge learning curve for me. Look, I've visited and it's a very nice environment now I, I didn't see it before the way you're describing it but you make a really interesting point about how you know how we can affect people just by working on their environment you know, the physical mm -hmm. the physical environment um, and and how you can use that to actually respect them so you know if I'm an employee and I see my leaders caring for my environment then I'm more likely to care for that as well and you know those things, silly things like housekeeping, you know, they sound like they're minor, but I don't think they are. I think housekeeping is a very powerful sign of where people's heads and hearts are at in the business. And you know, if it's a if it's a really clean environment and people, you know, are taking constant care of it, that's such a strong sign of a, a great culture. Housekeeping obviously is is safety. Yes. To me, that's a culture. You have to work on that culture to get people to think about safety, you know, and everything that they do. And that's not an overnight thing. That's I have to live, eat and breathe it every day. So if somebody comes to me and says, oh, Jenny, you know, a couple of weeks ago I passed so-and-so and, you know, that screw was hanging off. And I go, well, where's the hazard report? You know, I need it now. Like, and, and because you can't leave things like that, you know, and we go back out and we share that and the reasons why we can't leave it. 
and you get it fixed immediately and you go back and tell a person, you know, thank you for doing that. Thank you for raising it. And, you know, it's now fixed. And then they feel, oh, that wasn't bad. I didn't mind being recognized for that. So they do it again and then it becomes quicker. You know, that sort of, you know, but it's definitely recognition. You've got to make sure that you feedback all the time about what they're feeding you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a 360. And people forget that, you know, they'll they'll get the hazard report, they'll put it on their desk, and that's the last that person ever gets to hear about it until maybe one day he sees it fixed, but he doesn't know is it going to be fixed or is something happening with that? Or, you know, it's all about communicating, I guess. But oh, I think that's so important. Yeah. Like, you know, when people make suggestions and uh, report things. And, you know, they're showing some level of caring. If we don't, as leaders, respond to that and give them an answer, even if it's an answer they're not wanting. Yes, but give them an answer. <laughs> yeah. If we, just go in, if we just go into radio silence, that's, uh, that's not a great way to lead, I don't think. And um, right. you know, I've seen that in the past in my own career, you know, where I remember I used to run around the manufacturing manager and I would have this notebook and just put everything down in it that people asked me. But I won't claim that I was able to get back to everybody every time, but I, I've, I felt compelled to try and get people answers because I felt like I was leaving a communication void if I didn't. Yes, yeah. So, and it's so important because otherwise people just feel discarded, you know, and they're not important. Not important enough. And that's the, that's the key. You know, you have to make everybody feel important and they are important. That's the point. Yes. You know, like I'm not important. They are important. They're mm. the ones that get the work out the door. They're the ones that, you know, have to get up at 1am in the morning. They're the ones, you know, that's, that's how I look at it, you know, yeah, me mine's too. just to make sure it's sort of all going the right way. I'm curious about one thing, which is um, just changing tack slightly. What what has it been like working in a very male-dominated environment for you? I think it's true to say that, isn't it, that the environments you've worked in have been very male-dominated? Very. And how have you found that? You know, Is that something that's been difficult to navigate at times or challenging or or have you enjoyed that challenge? Yeah, well, I enjoy anything really that's it's different and it's moving on, etc. I've had some fabulous women work for me too. But men are interesting because they don't like fluff. They only like facts. And sometimes I fluff a lot. So I have to get my act together. And if I'm having a conversation, I have to just give it to the facts and real straight shooting. I suppose I live by the fact I stay feminine. This way I like to look at things. As I've seen women make the biggest mistake in trying to emulate men, I just I just don't know where that comes from or why you'd even bother because I actually quite enjoy being a woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> but to stay feminine, to be true to yourself, you know, and integrity would be my biggest value, I guess. So don't don't try and change for other people. Still right. be yourself, be authentic all the way through. Um, and if people don't like that, that's their issue. They own that. I don't own that. That took a lot of hard work over the years, but I've stood my ground and I've had many people make some <laughs> awful mistakes with me. One was in Rydalmere. I was remembering a truck driver got out and he had jandals on, or I think you call them thongs. And I said, excuse me, but you know, I think you need to get back in your truck and put your shoes on. And he said, and who the hell do you think you are? And I said, well, I'm actually the person that could probably get your truck turned around and say, see you later. And he goes, oh, oh, you know, 
And I've had many occasions like that where people don't realise, you know, because I don't I don't like to act like the big boss because I'm one of the team. That's how it is. But some people just make idiots of themselves, I guess. Yes. With comments like that, you know, and assumptions that women are should be the secretary, I guess. And, you know, I had two older brothers, you got to remember. So I sort of had to fight my way through the pack there as well. So, so yeah, you, you developed some assertiveness uh, with males early on. Early on in the piece, yeah. Yeah. So I know, I know that you, um, you've been involved in mentoring some women who are developing leaders. And um, is that part of that mentoring, that whole assertiveness piece, you know, how to stand up for yourself? I mean, I think I think that's valid for men as well. You know, there's men who don't stand up for themselves as well. And so it's, that's not really a gender thing, is it? No. And I find that a difficult question to actually answer. And I think you'll find most women do. And they're always looking for it because they, they're always looking for their key. In fact, I was asked the exact same question the other day. And I don't think there's any right or wrong answer because we're all people. And some, you know, some are stronger than others. Some have had different life experiences than others. Like myself, I guess, I didn't start off as a career person, but I've ended up as a career. And it's basically through necessity. And most women, you'll probably, well, not most women, that's a sweeping statement. A lot of women have had to become career people by necessity. So either by divorce or domestic violence or all those sorts of things, whereby they thought they were going to be a nurturing mum, looking after the children, and that was their life. That's not the case anymore. Something's happened in their life and they've had to, you know, change tact, I guess. And sometimes all those experiences that they go through makes them tougher, makes them a little bit harder to the world and they can stand up for themselves. And I can certainly stand my ground. It's like somebody with a piece of paper on the floor and they walk past it. And I will say to people, if you walk past that, you're agreeing to the fact that you want a dirty floor. Whatever you walk past, you're agreeing to it. And it's the same with when you hear people say terrible things about other people. If you stand there listening to it all, you're agreeing to it. And I'm not perfect by any means. And sometimes my tongue gets in the way and says things that I probably shouldn't say, like we all do. But always I've regretted afterwards. And <laughs> because I would like to put back the good rather than the negative side yes. of life, it does so much more for human beings, you know. Yes, so mentoring, I'd love to do mentoring. And I have done quite a, quite a bit in the past and seen some great success stories too. So when you reflect on how many years now is it in, in WA? Eight? Is it eight years? Eight years w? here in WA, yeah. yeah. What are the uh, key things then that you've learned in those eight years about shaping a culture and you know the journey that you've taken people on? Because yeah, I've witnessed that for the last few years and I've certainly seen some great development of people occur. But I'm just interested in your view of it. What has it taken from you to make that happen? And you know, what are the things that might be helpful for listeners to understand You know, in terms of if they're in a leadership position and they're trying to shape the culture of their business, what, what would you say? Maybe three, three, four key things that would help someone in that position. You have to stay motivated. Yeah, honestly, you have to stay motivated. You can't throw the towel in. And believe me, if you talk to my husband, you would have heard some stories from him where I really had thrown the towel in, you know, because either someone has done something which has pulled the carpet from underneath me and I, I'm shocked. But I've got to turn around and turn up the next day 
motivated. So I can't let allow people to think that they've got the better of me, I guess. And that's that's hard. That's sometimes very, very hard. And I've been in situations where, you know, you end up with a toxic environment around you that's very difficult to deal with. And um, I had to turn up every day and pretend none of that was happening and then just keep working on it to try and change that slowly but surely. Keep checking in on people all the Mm -hmm. time. Keep checking in is really important to me. And that's everybody. Now, you can't sit there and have a conversation with everybody. We're on a time limit here. And that my productivity, like I said, has grown to 30% over the years. So obviously, I'm not spending large amounts of time out there chatting. But the ones remember people and, and their families and things that you know about them, you know, remind yes. people that you do care. And that to me is super important. And look after yourself. That's my biggie. That's a good one. Yeah. Leadership is demanding work. Yeah. And, you know, some people look at me and think that I do it easy and how do you, how does she a lot of people have said that to me, but you look so relaxed. You look like you've got it all under control. Sometimes I'm just dying inside, but I'm not about to tell anybody else that. And because you can't, if you're the leader, you have to be strong for everybody. You can't lose your temper. You can't show it in your face, like go bright red and you show the anger. You can't do any of those things. You have to be absolutely deadpan and you have to be there because at any moment something could happen. We could have an earthquake or we could have a fire or whatever. And you have to be prepared to be able to lead the people out of all of that. That's the way I look at it. Um, You have to be strong and you've got to be motivated and you've got to stay stay on the course. And take the people with you. What what sort of things help you to take care of yourself? Well, I do have the odd glass of champagne, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, eat well and don't stress about the small things. And I run and I walk. I am in a walking group, and I find exercise obviously that gives me a buzz, a real buzz, actually. You know, like I know the days when I don't do it, I feel flat. Days that I've, you know, really had a really hard workout, I feel fantastic. I'm on top of the world. Those sorts of things. And obviously, make sure that you look after your family first. Because if you can't look after your family and your home life's not right, then you can't turn up to look after some other family. Was well, the same with the staff on the floor. You know, if you find staff are distracted because they've got an issue at home, you really need to send them home and get it sorted, you know, depending, of course, on the size of the problem. But or help them out with a problem or whatever, but you can't expect people to be focused on your job if they're focused with their loved ones or something's happening. That's great. That's so important, isn't it? And and lots of businesses don't really reach that far, do they? They just look at the the person and want to know why they're not performing and delivering. You know, it's like when you think about it in those terms, and I do as well. I mean, I think that's so important. You've really described it well. You know, it's like. If people have got things going on away from work, everyone's got something going on away from work, you know, and that, that can definitely end up affecting your performance. So we want to be considerate about that and allow room for that. And if necessary, you know, do something to support that person because they'll, they'll, they'll give it back in buckets if you do. So, yeah, it's super important to, to be with people It's funny, isn't it, that in the old days, and I suppose not so old days, probably my old days, um, people were treated like robots. You know, you weren't allowed to talk. You weren't allowed to get to know anybody. It was 
it was weird. And um, I so love what we do here because, you know, you can talk to everybody and you're not, you're not trying to trick anybody. You're not trying to do the wrong thing. You're just having a conversation and you're, and you're interested. And, you know, when you start talking to people, some of their lives and the things they've done is amazing. So, you know, don't wipe people off just because they pick and pack. They're actually fabulous, you know, so. When they're included like that, people feel like they're part of something that's bigger than them. And um, when they're valued, they give more, you know, so it just takes a certain level of commitment, I think, and um, skill to to engage like that and bring that out of people. And, you know, I, I, I think that leaders shape the culture every minute of every day, whether they like it or not. Yeah, they do. And just, just by who they are and the way they're interacting with people, that sets the tone. And, you know, even the, all the nonverbal stuff just sets the tone, you know, so it's like any gestures you're making or the way you look at someone and all that sort of stuff. If you're not fully present and spending most of your time in the moment, then you're running on autopilot and you're not necessarily aware of what you're communicating. Yeah. And people pick up on that real quick. They just find you not genuine, not authentic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and you're just going through the motions. That's it. You're not really there. You're not really there if you're not present. And um, I, I like to say that, you know, the only time where change can occur is in the present moment. That's the only time, it, that's the only way it happens because the past's already gone and the future is just a plan that we're talking about. So right now is the only time where change occurs. So what do I mean by that? Well, right now in those in those interactions with people in the present moment, if you're really present and conscious of what you're trying to do in those interactions, that's where the change occurs. Like the way the way you talk to people, what you ask them to do, the way you're influencing them, whether they experience you as a caring, nurturing person or someone who's distant or far away. So that's where the change occurs. So we so as leaders, we've got to get really present. We've got to get into the moment and do our work there. Yeah. And it's not easy. I get that. You know, like I understand some people go, oh, I'm just tired of saying the same old thing, you know. <laughs> but that's just how it is. It's the job. That's what you sign up for. And if you don't like people, don't become a leader of people. No, that's Please, right. Please, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, that, it's true. I mean, if you if you don't and you're not willing to do that, you're probably going to do more damage than good. Yeah. If you're not prepared to throw yourself into it, you know, at a deep level. Yeah. So, okay, so we've got stay motivated, checking in with people continually, and that self-care piece. I think that's just brilliant, the self-care piece, because mm. – People don't always think about that. And that, you know, when you're looking after yourself consciously doing that, it's a great example to set for others. And they'll notice that. They'll see how, you know, that person's taking care of themselves. Yeah. It's super important because if you can't take care of you, you can't take care of anybody else. No. Mm. No. So I realized that as a young mum, you know. But mm. didn't look after myself, you know, who was going to look after the kids, so right. the children. So, yeah. So what's next for for Jenny? What's next for me? One of my blind spots is um, that I'm, I suppose I align myself with my work. And so if I was to retire, like 
yes, what do I do? Be mm. a crazy woman and annoy my husband or, um, <laughs> or find something more exciting like projects or whatever. And, and probably more along the line of putting back into my doing what my mum did and hoping bringing other, other people up, go through Enneagrams, do more training, you know, for leadership and setting a lot of motivation, you know, to get people really up to speed. And because life is not a dress rehearsal, as they keep saying, this is it. So don't waste your time. And I wish somebody had said that to me years ago. That's a good point you've just made, though, is like when you get to your stage of leadership where you've had a lot of experiences and, you know, you're, you've honed your skills, it, I think looking at it from a point of view, things I wished I'd known when I was in my 20s, and when I was in my 30s, I wish someone had explained this to me because that was the genesis of the programs that I've been developing, which you've been using in Symbian, is exactly that. These are things I wish that I'd known when I was a young leader, just just first becoming a frontline leader. Like my first role was with 50 women in Merseyside. I was put in charge to supervise 50 women and, and um, boy, did I learn quickly. Direct feedback uh, whenever I made some missteps the next five, 10 years, I wish someone had told me what I know now about leadership. It would have been so good to uh, have had that support, to have someone mentor me and teach me rather than just be constantly reacting to problems and, and you know just fumbling your way through people issues and trying to get a resolution and learning the hard way. Yeah, yeah it would have right. been it would have been great to have someone supporting me. I, I know you've been doing, doing some of that work. I could see you doing a lot more of that. Actually, I think you've got a lot to offer. Lean too is that you know Lean has shown me also, which is obviously the Japanese yes system for Toyota. But what I got out of Lean, the most important part out of Lean was that it's never the human being; it's always the process that's the issue. It's always the process, and it doesn't matter what you do; it's always the process, never the person. And then once you've got that in your head, you go, well, if it's never the person, then you've got to invest in the person because they'll fix the process or they'll tell you what the process, the issue is with the process. It's been some amazing things I've learned and probably it would be most of it in the last sort of 10 to 15 years of my life. Just crazy, isn't it? But yeah, and there's so much more to learn and so much more to give back as well because when pe- when you give back to people people give to you as well at the same time so you, it's not a one way street here exactly i definitely experienced that in coaching discussions as i always learn something new in in every discussion you know from the person i'm working with so mm. it's definitely a two way process that was jenny turner A link to her LinkedIn profile is in the show notes. Here's three coaching moments inspired by today's show. Number one, communication. If you leave a vacuum in the communication space, someone will fill it and not necessarily with what you would have said. In general, don't abdicate responsibility for communication. If you plan to over-communicate, you will probably get it right. Number two, micro-interactions. Think about all the micro-interactions you have as a leader. Each one communicates who you are, so try to be purposeful with those interactions. Practice staying present in each interaction and make each one a positive experience for both you and the person or people you are speaking with. Number three, leadership is a demanding activity. 
How are you taking care of yourself this week? What actions are you taking to recharge yourself? Do you have a plan for self-care on an ongoing basis? If you'd like to learn more about a mastermind program for managers of frontline leaders, please visit workplaceculture.com.au. The link is in the show notes. Our mastermind program guides leaders through a process of developing their frontline leaders and team members. This creates an environment where people work collaboratively to deliver results. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to hear more conversations with leaders, let me know by subscribing on your podcast app of choice and leaving a review. That's all for now. I'm John Bradbury, and this was my Workplace Culture podcast.